0: I don't steal my kids' candy, but there's a tax when they come back to the house. Anybody? No. Uh, good morning. I'm, I'm Dave Doris. I didn't introduce myself before. I'm the associate pastor here at Potomac Hills. Uh, Dr. Silvernail is away this weekend uh, finishing up some things with his mother in law's house. Um, and we'll be back, I think, tomorrow night. you have your sermon outline. A man named Dr. William Leslie had wanted to be a pharmacist growing up, but he felt God's call to become a medical missionary. Um, It was kind of the classic go to the darkest jungle in Africa and uh, go to the isolated native tribe. That was his mission. And he went to the Congo as a young man, and he met his his wife there. They served together, and they were there for 17 years in an area called Vanga. Uh, They cleared enough jungle for a mission station to be built. Um, But in the midst of that, there were still surrounding tribes practicing cannibalism. They had to, uh, as they were clearing, they had to avoid the, the leopards, Uh, charging buffaloes. There was even a hurricane the night before uh, his wife delivered one of their children. It was a tough assignment. At the end of those 17 years, Dr. Leslie had a falling out with the tribal leaders that he had been working with, and they asked him not to come back. So despite years of teaching the village children how to read and write and telling Bible stories, Dr. Leslie left for home at the end of that 17 years, feeling like a failure. Like he had not made much of an impact, and he died just a few years later. I hope that no one has ever told you that following Jesus would be easy. I hope you haven't listened to too many testimonies that claimed that their life was terrible and a wreck and had all these problems and they came, they followed the Lord, and now their worries have vanished. And I certainly hope you haven't yourself promised someone else that life in Christ makes this world's promises go away. There are lots of amazing gospel promises. Eternal life. Forgiveness of sin, purpose, meaning, fellowship, community, abundant life. But abundant life does not imply that hardships will not come our way. Maybe we're better equipped to handle them. Maybe we have perspective. But this life is still a trial. I remember R.C. Sproul saying, I didn't have any problems until I became a Christian. And what he meant was that as a kid, he had sinned away, and it rarely bothered him. But as a young man, he became a Christian, and he realized that he was suddenly conflicted about his sin. And that's not to imply at all that unbelievers don't have problems. Of course they do. And Christians have those same problems, but with the added weight of following God's law and trying to live a life pleasing to Him. The really hard part is when Christians commit to step out in faith. And we want to live a life of obedience and accomplish great things for God, and then opposition comes. And we wait for success that might not come in this life it's hard to stay faithful in those times it's hard not to doubt not to yell at god question everything today's passage shows us a discouraged group of people who are just trying to obey god they they've done what god asked them to do but they've met stiff opposition and been hurt in the process and in response, they lash out, they complain, they voice their discouragements. they have a hard time seeing how God could be working out his plans. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 5. If you'll remember at the end of chapter 4, Moses has left Midian, where he had a family and a job for 40 years, uh, and now he's gone back to Egypt following God's call. He's met up with his brother Aaron, and the two of them have now met with the elders of the Israelites and been well-received. Now, chapter 5, today's passage is Moses and Aaron's first meeting with Pharaoh. And because it's Communion Sunday, and it needs to be a little shorter here, I won't read the whole scripture up front, we'll just read it as we work through the passage, work through my points. The first three verses show Moses' first time in the Egyptian palace. In 40 years, bringing the words of the Lord. So verses 1 through 3 show us, thus saith the Lord. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord and moreover I will not let Israel go. Then they said the God of the Hebrews has met with us please let us go a 3 days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Let my people go. That's we're we're used to thinking of Moses or really Aaron Thundering this phrase at Pharaoh, right? Demanding that he release the slaves. And we're not looking, um, they're not asking for the total release of all the Hebrew slaves yet. Right? They're just asking for a little retreat. This is what God had told them to start with. Hey, Pharaoh, we've, we've organized a little men's, women's retreat. Um, we'll have something for the kids going. We'll go to one of those cool retreat centers, do some low ropes course. Pick out, have a little feast, have some kumbaya moments. No big deal. We'll be back in a couple days. And if you don't let us go, our God make it violent. I have no idea why they added that last part. That's not part of what God had said. Uh, Talk about that in your community groups this week if you're discussing the sermon. Um, I should ask the high school group if they talked about this in Sunday school. I don't know why they add that. But it's not a shock, is it, in verse 2, when Pharaoh responds and says, who, who is Yahweh? And essentially, he says, I, I don't know him, and I don't have to listen to him. Nobody's going anywhere. I mean, put yourself in Pharaoh's shoes, right? You're a god yourself, or at least that's what everybody told you. Um. Moses, they have a word for Moses, Shasu, which is Egyptian for wandering nomad. This dirty, filthy peasant comes in front of you, and now you're being told that a God you've never heard of, a God of slaves, the God of the guy who fled the palace 40 years ago because he was a murderer, and that now he's demanding something of you. Of course you're not going to give in, Right? Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act of this country of 1964 requires employers to reasonably accommodate the religious beliefs and practices of employees. Apparently, they didn't have anything like that. God's people know His voice. As sheep know the voice of their shepherd, but those who are not God's people have no problem saying that they won't obey What they don't believe. So God's request, spoken through Aaron, has been presented. But now we see in verses 4 through 11, Pharaoh doesn't just say no, right? He goes way beyond that. Verse 4 But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. Right, I suppose when companies are faced with labor unhappiness and and demands for change, probably got three basic options. One is that you capitulate, make some changes, right? Give in to some of the demands. Two, ignore them, pretend there's there's no problem, just keep everything the same. Or you can go Ferris tactic, make conditions so much worse that they quit complaining about what it used to be like, right? You thought making bricks was hard? Now you have to gather the straw, too. We're not going to baby you by giving you the materials. Go find it yourself. Of course, Pharaoh's not an employer, right? He's a ruthless slave owner. And any signs of resistance are met with a tightening of the grip. And of course, the added kicker for all this extra work is that Pharaoh probably knows that the average Israelite, this will pit him against his leaders. right? The message is, the guys claiming to be your liberators are making it so much worse for you. So we have Pharaoh's answer. You're lazy. You're a bunch of liars. You're manipulative, trying to get out of work. I'm going to punish you for even daring to suggest a holiday. I mean, he's got to protect his country, the Egyptian way of life, right? Their well-being. Pharaoh needs the people to live in fear of him, with no thoughts of freedom to cloud their minds. So we find out in the next dozen verses that the strategy works. Crushing the spirits of the Hebrew people. And even their leader. Um, Keep in mind as we read this, we have the taskmasters under Pharaoh, and then the foremen, who must have been Hebrews, Israelites under them over the people. Twelve through twenty-three. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt, get to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work. Your daily task each day is when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks." And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, this is Pharaoh, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means... Reduced your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send us? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Martin Luther King Jr. said, the Pharaohs had a favorite and effective strategy to keep their slaves in bondage, keep them fighting among themselves. The divide and conquer technique has been a potent weapon in the arsenal of oppression so if you got lost in all of that pharaoh commands his taskmasters to double the workload and when the people can't keep up the taskmasters then beat the israelite foreman for the failures of the people right so the foreman go to pharaoh to complain but when he changes Uh, But he refuses to change his mind. So they're leaving and they, they see Moses and Aaron. And they accuse them of turning their masters against them. You have made us stink, they say. And maybe most disappointing of all, with those charges still ringing in his ears, Moses turns to God and says, why did you send me? when all that happens is the people get beaten and you don't do anything to help. I don't know if you caught what exactly what he said, but he, he, Moses accuses Pharaoh of doing evil, but if you read carefully, he says that God did evil to the people. So I guess this is where we're going to get the bulk of our application. This is where we see ourselves in this story, at least I do. Remember, at the end of chapter 4, again, when Moses and Aaron had told the Hebrews that God was coming to rescue them and that they would have their freedom soon, how did the people respond? They worshipped. They were excited. This was very good news, right? Someone had come to help them and their slavery would be coming to an end. But then the first step of the rescue plan doesn't work very well in their eyes. Not only does Pharaoh refuse to give them some time away, but he cracks down on them and makes life unbearable for them. And he whips them when they can't meet this impossible new standard. So I think the question before us, kind of hinted at at the introduction, is when you start obeying God and step out in faith and trying to do what He's called you to do, there's usually an an expectation that things are going to work out and get better and that you'll find success and a blessing. So what happens if none of that happens and things get worse? And people hate you or hurt you, or both. And the devil works overtime to discourage you, and maybe even believing friends are upset with you. The Christian life will include opposition. When we confront the culture with the Word of God, they don't like it. and the enemy opposes any time, the kingdom advances, and our own people are hurt, angry, and scared. We see how this affects both leaders and people. Because when things had turned sour, the people are grumble and are upset. You'd think that Moses would stay calm, right, and remind them: R E L A X. That's an Aaron Rodgers football reference. Somebody got it. Relax, okay? This was to be expected. It's all going how God said it would. We knew Pharaoh wasn't going to be on board from the beginning. We're still on track. But Moses doesn't say that, does he? I think because he doesn't feel that. He crumbles under the pressure too. So, it's not just your average church member, but it's Christian leaders who are challenged by this passage. Can I let you in on a little secret? It doesn't take much to discourage me in ministry. I don't show it very often here, um, but people close to me know that when, when things aren't going well, people aren't showing up, or people leave, or, or whatever, I can get discouraged. I may have sounded really upbeat when I told you that Peter's not coming and we got to move our time frame a little bit. But I've been battling discouragement with that. I feel like we wasted a lot of time. I feel like the things that need to get done by the two staff members, this feels a little bit like making bricks without straw. Please don't feel bad for me, though. I'm not asking for pity. There's a hundred things that I'm encouraged about, right? When I was in Texas last week telling my college friends, we had a reunion, 20th year homecoming, I gushed about the church. And there's so much great going on. But I recognize myself in Moses' words and his discouragement. It's kind of providential that this passage was assigned for this week. And I've actually caught myself kind of feeling down And I said something to the effect of this. I remember saying this out loud in my car Nobody's beating you. No one's whipping you. No one's persecuting you. Just reflecting on the text, right? I mean, I should expect opposition. I should expect Jesus told us there would be trials and that we would have to persevere. Did he not? Most of the pressure for this church to do well is, is pressure that I put on myself. And I recognize also that I very little to be discouraged about compared to many of you who have major health issues. We had an elder and a deacon have surgery this week. Um, we've got a lot going on in this congregation. I could list so many things that we've been praying for. It's easy to see discouragement. Out of the whole story, there comes to us this lesson. We must never suppose that the difficulties which confront us indicate that we're not on God's path and that we're not doing His work. Indeed, often the contrary is the case. If we are willing to walk with God He will test the sincerity and temper of our soul. I didn't write that. F.B. Meyer wrote that. But as chapter 5 ends, with everybody pretty upset, right? Everyone is despondent. The first verse of chapter 6 shoots hope back into the story. God says, see what I'm about to do here just the first verse in chapter 6. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out, people, and with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. Do you remember Pharaoh asked in 5 verse 2, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And really, The Israelites and Moses have been asking the same thing without those same words. But they've been saying, who is the Lord? Is He strong enough to do what He said He would do? Is He strong enough to accomplish it? Well, God doesn't always answer those questions and those doubts. Just ask Job. But here He does. And God says, yes, yes. I am strong enough. Sit back and watch as I show you how strong I am and how I will accomplish this. You're going to see some crazy things coming up. we got the plagues coming, right? Pharaoh's not letting you go now, but I'm going to make life so miserable for him, he's going to drive you out. He will not be able to wait to get rid of you. It didn't happen immediately, Right? It didn't happen on everyone's timetable. God had reasons for doing this the hard way, the long way, to give Pharaoh every chance he could to relent, to release the people. But God will show up, and he will follow through. Pharaoh's time of judgment is coming. The people's deliverance is coming. There was anyone who followed the will of God perfectly and did not deserve any opposition or violence. It was God's Son that He sent to save the world. A man who never sinned, never hurt anyone, who healed and spoke words of truth to give people life. And yet, before He finished His mission, Jesus faced unfathomable opposition. People were angry at every step of the way in his ministry. People plotted to kill him from very early on and eventually succeeded in marshalling together the forces they needed to arrest, try, convict, and crucify him. His death, the darkest day in human history, may have seemed that God was not at work. We could probably hear Moses' complaint. You have not delivered your people at all as Jesus sat in the tomb. And yet, God was in the middle of His greatest work. He would raise Jesus from the dead and use Those events, those actions, as the instruments of deliverance and forgiveness of all his people. Satan thought he had won, just like Pharaoh did. But God was in the middle of delivering his people, and he would not be stopped. And we fight discouragement with gospel promises. That's my thesis statement. I should have said that earlier. You want to write that down. We fight discouragement in our lives with gospel promises because we walk by faith, not by sight. When it doesn't look like God is walking with us and things are not going how we hoped, people have turned on us or life has beaten us down, we lift our eyes to the heavens and remember that he is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. We cannot presume that everything we want, everything we expect of God will happen, but we can trust Him to keep His promises. We know He is strong enough. And we have that word that you've heard a thousand times to describe God's ability to keep things under control, His sovereignty. To say that God is sovereign means that he rules the universe with a strong hand. He knows everything that will pass and he works his plan of redemption using his mighty arm to keep things on course. When trouble comes in our lives, God is still in control. Whether we understand it or not, he is working out his glorious purposes. I believe that in my life. I believe that for this church. We're going to get a third staff member. If we don't, God will still build His church. However, He needs it to be built. And I believe that whatever you're facing in your life, no matter how difficult or discouraging, your Heavenly Father loves you and is working all things eventually for your good and His glory. Remember the story about Dr. William Leslie? the missionary to Vanga in the Congo. All of that happened in the 1920s and 30s. Fast forward to 2010, when a team from Tom Cox World Ministries traveled by plane, canoe, and foot deep into the jungle to meet the people, the tribe in Vanga. And while they thought that the people might know who Jesus was, what they found Astonished them. They were not prepared. They found a network of reproducing churches. That in each of the eight villages, there was a gospel-believing church, each with their own gospel choir. They would have competitions and sing to one another. There was still no Bible in their language, but the people that wanted to learn it badly enough learned French so that they could read the French Bible that had been left with them. The gospel was alive and flourishing. And where William Leslie saw problems and failures, God saw faith and obedience and worked greatly in the aftermath of Dr. Leslie's departure. His strong arm saved his people. I'm going to close with a quote from Dr. Robert Rainburn. Think of our lives as part of the great drama of world history, of the demonstration of God's nature and character to his rebellious creation. Think of your private life in those cosmic terms and it will nerve you, steel you to live more courageously with a greater determination to prove the Lord's wisdom and grace to the principalities and powers and to live more defiantly in the face of the opposition, even the oppression of the world. The Lord is with us, and we shall prevail. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for the timing of it. Thank you for reminding us that it was dark and discouraging In that time in Moses' life when he brought the plan of rescue to the people and then presented it to Pharaoh and was rejected. And the people were beat and whipped and given extra work and everyone was discouraged. And it was a dark and discouraging day when Jesus was killed that his followers thought the mission had failed. That he couldn't be the Messiah that they thought he was if the Romans had crucified him. And it can be dark and discouraging for us today when we follow you, Lord, in the midst of a world that doesn't know you, that opposes you. Lord, lift our eyes to you. Give us supernatural eyes and understanding to know who you are, that you are completely sovereign and in charge, that you have unconditional love for your people. Remind us of your deliverance through the ages. Strengthen our faith that no matter what we face in life, you you walk with us through it. And you are working out your plans in and around our circumstances. Remind us that we have a glorious future awaiting us when we're released from the problems of this life. When we live, rule, and reign with you. You delivered us from sin and death and the evil one to your heavenly kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.